Did I tell you to take a seat? Jeez. You're just like Israel, you unruly children. <laughs> Let me pray, okay? Fathers, we come before you and we'll open our Bibles this morning. We want to hear from you. We acknowledge that you are a creator, that you are our king, that you are our savior, and you are our Lord. And we are to submit our lives to you. And so even right now, Lord, I ask that your spirit would speak through me to bring glory to you and, and to the Son and to the, the Spirit, that you would build up this local body here at Bible Chapel, that we would be encouraged, that we would be challenged, that perhaps even some of us would be convicted, but that that would not come from me, but from you, through the work of the Holy Spirit within us. So give us hearts that are soft before you, minds to understand, and eyes to see what it is that you have for us this morning. Be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll continue our series, Counterculture, Living a Righteous Life. And we're going to talk about a subject that's got a lot of confusion, and it's going to take some time. But um, I want to begin by, I discovered this in my research for the sermon uh, this week. Actually, it was last week. But um, this is from Armand Nikolai. You ever never heard of him? I hadn't. Um, he was a medical doctor and a clinical professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School in the Massachusetts General Hospital. His clinical work and research focused on the impact of absent parents on the emotional development of children and young adults. He was the editor and co-author of the classic The Harvard Graduate or Harvard, Harvard Guide to Psychiatry and was also a founding board member of the Family Research Council, whom I'm sure some of you are aware of, that organization. Almost 42 years ago, he was interviewed by Christianity Today. And the article was published in the May 25th, 1979 Christianity Today magazine. I discovered this in two separate readings in preparation for this message. The title of the article was The Fractured Family, following it into the future. And while not claiming to be a prophet, uh, Dr. Armand Nikolai is, however, a believer in Jesus Christ. And I was absolutely fascinated at the accuracy of some of his claims over 40 years later. So we're talking May 25th, 1979. It is January 31st, 2021, almost 42 years later. I'm going to just read you a portion of this interview. And I quote, he says, certain trends prevalent today will incapacitate the family, destroy its integrity, and cause its members to suffer such crippling emotional conflict that they will become an intolerable burden to society. If any one factor characterizes the emotional stability of an individual, it is the quality of the relationship he or she experiences as a child with both parents. Conversely, if people suffering from severe non-organic emotional illness have one experience in common, it is the absence of a parent through death, divorce, etc. 
A patience and accessibility either physically or emotionally or both can profoundly influence a child's emotional health. Let me explain something here because he got a little technical. Most people who have a non-organic, and what he means by that is they, they, have, they do not have a physically induced illness, but rather they have an emotionally induced illness, have in common one thing, a wrong relationship in their childhood to their parents. He goes on to suggest that if we decide to come up with a society without families, which is the trend today, now listen to this, we will have such mental and emotional monsters that in the next generation that there will be no way for society to cope with them. We saw those monsters and emotionally crippled kids that can't handle working hard, that can't handle any sort of stress, and that have no respect for authority and riot and protest and destroy and loot with no conscience, no guilt. We saw it this past summer. Now, here's another direct quote from the article. What has been shown to contribute most to the emotional development of a child is the close, warm, sustained, and continuous relationship with both parents. Yet certain trends in our society make this most difficult. Well, now Dr. Nikolai is going to go on to suggest what these trends that are causing the destruction of the family and are creating a generation of emotional cripples, emotionally weak people. Number six, married women with children working outside the home. I quote, my clinical experience indicates clearly that no woman or women with young children can do both at the same time without sacrificing either the quality of work or the quality of childcare. And again, I say to you that our kids are who they are today because I was working, Eric was at home with the kids. And we sacrificed, from a financial perspective, as you know, in today's world. I don't know how you would do it living in Washington State with the cost of living so here. But this is again 1979. Number five, the tendency for families to move frequently. He says 50% of the U.S. population lived at a different address five years ago. Consequently, young people have no sense of roots, have no concept of extended friendships. Number four, the invasion of television into the home. One-fifth of the lifetime of the next generation will be spent watching television. Remember the latchkey kids? Remember that phrase? You heard of that? Kids that would come home in the 80s and latchkey in the house and they were no supervision and they would just watch television. If you live to be 80 years of age and you're an average, you will have watched television a total of 4,000 days of your life. People watch thousands of days of television programming, and what does that programming promote in regards to the family? It's an anti-family agenda at one level or another. Number three, the lack of controls in our society. By this, he is referring to no moral standards. I think we've seen that today. And when a society has no moral standards, what invariably results is deep moral confusion. When you have deep moral confusion in the life of an individual, you always have a tremendous amount of guilt. And a tremendous amount of guilt leads people to compensate 
with behavior, and usually it's aberrant behavior. And then Dr. Nikolai goes on to point out that no standards in a society will cause people to be unable to control their impulses. There will be a rise in violent crimes. There will be a wildness to our sex activities. Homosexuality and perversion will explode in popularity in the next generation. I can say that that has happened. If you have a brain and eyes and ears. But two, a lack of communication in the home. Studying a small town in the United States indicated that the average father spent an average of 37 seconds a day with his young sons. And let me summarize these trends for us this morning. Married women with children working outside the home, the tendencies for families to move frequently, the invasion of television, the lack of controls in our society, and a lack of communication in the home. All of these contribute to the breakdown of the family, which will create a generation of emotional cripples. Emotionally misfit people. But here's the thing. The first one on his list, I haven't even mentioned it yet. The number one cause of emotional problems in the lives of the next generation is divorce. He goes on to say this, I quote, the trend towards quick and easy divorce and the ever-increasing divorce rate subjects more, than, more and more children to physically and emotionally absent parents. The divorce rate has risen 700% in this century and it continues to rise. There is now one divorce for every 1.8 marriages. Again, this is from May 25th, 1979, he was saying this. He goes on to say over 1 million children a year are involved in divorce cases and 13 million children under 18 now have one or both parents missing. Here is his conclusion, and I read this. First, the quality of family life will continue to deteriorate, producing a society with a higher incidence of mental illness than ever before. He says 95% of our hospital beds, he believes, will be taken up by mentally ill people. I don't think that's taking place. But I know there's been a rise in mental illness. This illness will be characterized primarily by a lack of self-control. We can expect the assassination of people and authority to be frequent occurrences. That hasn't happened. But crimes of violence will increase. That's happened. Even those in the family, the suicide rate will increase. As sexuality becomes more unlimited, more separated from family and emotional commitment, the deadening effect will cause more bizarre experimenting and widespread perversion. That has happened. See, a basic building block of any society, of course, is the family. And when that foundation is attacked and eventually weakened, the results are just utterly devastating. Broken homes produce dysfunctional families, which typically produce these types of children. Number one is you have the insecure child. Children with no sense of security because, a physically, because of a physically or emotionally absent parent. So it's the insecure child. Number two, you have the rebellious child. Children with no concept of authority. And number three, the immoral child. Children with no sense of morality. One of the first things Eric and I noticed after living in the Pacific Northwest for about a year, I would say, it was the number of dysfunctional families and broken homes. Our children had become friends with a young man who grew up without a mother, 
A girl who is being raised by her grandmother and her husband because her biological parents were drug users, and thank God for those grandparents. And another young man whose parents were never married and the father was rarely at home. And this does not even include other friends of my children who have come from divorced homes. Now, if you're like me, you probably have some confusion about what the Bible says concerning divorce. And I've learned that there are basically four types of thoughts about divorce. And we typically fall into one of the four thought categories. Number one is some people think no divorce for any reason, under any circumstances, for anything at all. Number two, some people think divorce under certain circumstances, but no remarriage. Number three, some people think divorce and remarriage anytime or any, for any reason at all. And number four, some people think divorce and remarriage, but not for anything at all, and only under certain circumstances. Now, take encouragement that there was confusion about divorce during the time of Jesus. And he sets the record straight and kind of does it in a rather succinct way on this topic in his Sermon on the Mount. This is a verse we're going to look at this morning to an extent. This will end up being a two or even three-part series on divorce because of how much the Bible speaks on this issue and because there's so much confusion out there. And I want you to understand what is very clear in the Bible and clear up any confusion that you may have about divorce. I want you to most importantly clearly see God's heart in this matter. Matthew 5, 31, 32, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that Everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, as we look at the Word of God to discover what the Bible says about divorce, we find ourselves exactly where the Pharisees are during the time of this sermon. They had devised a faulty view of divorce and remarriage. And again, I've got to set the context here. For this sermon. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he is dealing with the people who believe that you could, by your, your righteous works, be righteous. But as he continues to remind them of God's true standards in this sermon, it exposes their sin and their hypocrisy and the undeniable fact that they could not meet God's standards. I mean, if you even thought about, you know, adultery in your heart, you were guilty of it in God's eyes. If you were angry at a brother or sister or person, it's as if you murdered them in the eyes of God. So what do you do when you can't meet a standard? Do what everyone else does. They invented their own standards, called it God's standards, and because this relieved their guilt, and it provided them with a false sense of security with God. The scribes and Pharisees misinterpreted the Bible to fit their own view, and they found a verse or two to justify their position. So any, that's how any heresy starts, by the way. So in regard to divorce, they decide that you ought to be able to leave your wife whenever you want. And the scripture they twisted around was Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. I'm going to read it for you. We're going to go into it more in depth next week. 
You can just listen to this. It says this. This is Moses speaking. Again, Deuteronomy is what? Kind of summary of the Pentateuch, right? It says this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, so the second husband dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. In other words, the reason that you can, in this case, you're sending someone away, if they go and marry someone else, okay, they've committed adultery. Because you'll find out that God never condones divorce for the most part. So what you had in society was people just committing adultery over and over and over again. You divorce for not a biblical reason, they marry, and guess what happens in that relationship? Adultery is happening. So there was this proliferation of adultery going on. And what the Pharisees did is they invented their view to justify their sin, and then they misinterpreted a verse to fit their justification. And so what you have in verse 31 of Matthew 5 up there is, in their view of how they understood divorce, and in verse 32, you have Jesus' view. See, and what the people were told and what they heard was wrong. And what Jesus is telling them is right. They tolerate divorce for any reason, and Jesus doesn't tolerate divorce for any reason. You do know that, right? He does not tolerate divorce for any reason. Now, to get a, a grasp on the topic of divorce, and this is where it gets so confused, because I can see the confusion in some of your faces, we're going to go right back to the very beginning and get your Bibles out and turn to this verse, Genesis 2, 23 to 25. Notice that this is before Genesis chapter 3. There's no sin in the world. It's the creation narrative, the creation story. This is what the verse says. Then the man said... God has created man, and man realizes he's alone, and so God presents him with a woman. And his response, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and his, his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So in order for us to understand God's view of divorce, we must first understand, guess what? God's view of marriage. So God brought together the first man and the first woman in a monogamous, lifelong marriage between a male and a female. Now notice that it says, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The words hold fast, or your translation may say cleave to or cleave unto, that reveals the nature of the marriage bond in the eyes of God. This was God's intention. 
Because hold fast carries the idea of being glued to something. Think of crazy glue. A man and a woman become stuck in the sense that God has stuck them together. And when two people are glued together, they become one single individual, or as the verse says, one flesh. You see that? Now this, of course, implies a lifelong marriage. So God unites a man and a woman in a unique and profound biological and spiritual bond, and marriage is by God's design to be what? The perfect welding of two people together into a permanent oneness. You got that? A lifelong monogamous relationship between a male and a female. Now this is why Jesus said this in Matthew 19, 6. You can just listen to this verse. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So man and woman is not to divorce or separate what God has joined together. Now since marriage is an institution of God, listen to me, any marriage, whether a Christian marriage or not, is God gluing together or bonding two people together, and that bond is not to be broken by divorce. So sacred is marriage that any violation of that marriage union resulted in the penalty of death. Do you remember last week's sermon? The seventh commandment says you shall not commit adultery. Adultery is sexual involvement outside the bond of marriage and was punishable by death. God has such a high view of marriage that in the last of the Ten Commandments, he says, you shall not cover your neighbor's wife. So even for a married person to desire another partner was so evil that it was one of the ten major sins. God has such a high view of marriage that Jesus says, if anybody looks at a woman to what? Lust for her, or lust after her, what has he done? He's already committed adultery in his heart. So it's so serious that not only is it forbidden to engage in the physical act of adultery, it's even forbidden to think about it. That's how sacred and that's the high view that God has of marriage. And folks, we haven't really dived into the word of God yet, into how clear God is on this. Now, what happened to marriage at the fall? This is where I think your eyes will be opened. Let's take a look at that. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. What we're going to do in this, this topic of divorce, we're just going to go through the Bible, kind of chronologically. We'll finish up the Old Testament next week, get a New Testament probably the week after that, and you'll see it's very clear. But what happened to marriage at the fall? Let's take a look at that. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So God created Adam, the first man, then Eve, he installed Adam as the head or the leader of the newly formed relationship, and Eve was created to be his helper. 
At this point in time, and this is what may be, it's just new to us because it's completely foreign to us. We, we don't know what life was like before the fall, but marriage is pure bliss at this point in time in history. I don't even know what that's like. Now watch us know what it's like. Nobody here knows what that's like. If I were to say marriage is pure hell, you'd say, okay, I get that one. Yeah, I understand that to an extent, right? But marriage was pure bliss. The man's headship, his leadership, was a loving, caring provision of understanding. The woman's being a helpmate was a loving, caring submissiveness to the one who was given as her leader. It was beautiful. Her heart was totally devoted to him. His heart was totally devoted to her. And according to Genesis 1, 27 and 28, they ruled together. It says this, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, what? Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The dominion, the ruler, and the leadership. Both male and female, husband and wife, man and woman, ruled. And it was just bliss. Everything was working great. But marital bliss was about to end. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And this is such character from Adam. The woman whom you gave to be with me she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. The blame game. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. A couple things here. Satan just disregarded God's created order, or the chain of command, and bypassed the head of the relationship, Adam, and tempted Eve, the helpmate, Tempted her to usurp Adam's role as the head and take leadership in the relationship. Let me just say this, take leadership in the marriage relationship. And she led the way into sin as Adam, who was with her, apparently stood by as a passive spectator. So the fall of man was due to nothing more than a case of sex role reversal. But the results were devastating on many levels. Let's listen to this, verses 16 and 19. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for 
Out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now there are several elements, when you really look at this passage, of the curse that involved relationships. Namely, man suffers from a separated relationship with God. But also, a separated relationship now exists between man and nature. You see that? And a separated relationship now exists between man and his wife. So for our purposes this morning, we're going to look at the separated relationship between a man and a woman. Because as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, the marriage relationship was cursed, like every other human relationship. Did you know that? Well, if you didn't, I'm going to answer it for you right now. How was it cursed? Well, let's look at Genesis 3.16. That supplies the answer. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, you notice at the end of the verse 16, the statement, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Folks, in that one statement, you have the basic problem in marriage. God's original design was a permanent union between a husband and a wife through all of life. But when sin entered the human race, it resulted in a terrible conflict in marriage. And the marriage ideal was shattered. Chaos entered the home. And divorce inevitably became the result. Now, how does this happen? Well, specifically, it is a curse given to the woman in Genesis 3.16. The word rule in Genesis 3.16, it means, listen to this now, to rule or reign from an elevated position. So what happened at the fall is that man was elevated to rule in the marriage relationship. Whereas before man had a kind of a soft kind of dominance and a loving, caring approach with the woman, guess what? Now he is set in a place of ruling with authority. Did you know what happened at the fall? The word rule in 3.16 is a different word than the word for rule in Genesis 1.28. Dominion, rule, it's not the same word. It's a completely different word. The woman then is made immediately subordinate to the man. This explains, ladies, why there is male chauvinism in the world. Because the woman led the way into sin... Part of her curse is that God set man over her to subdue or to control her. The very thing that Adam, or the man, failed to do at the temptation. He should have stepped in and stopped what was going on, but he didn't. However, while God installed man as a ruler over the woman, the woman still has another curse to deal with. She suffers from a desire to rule her husband. How do we know this? Well, the word desire in Genesis 3.16 is used only one other time in the Pentateuch, of the first five books of the Bible, where it speaks of Cain's struggle with mastering sin. Turn to Genesis 4.7. Genesis 4.7. Watch this. If you do well, this is God speaking to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desire... Is for you, but you must not, but you must rule 
over it. Same word, desire. The same the curse for the woman is the desire. Same word here, desire. These verses, you know, they're constructed the same way in the Hebrew, 4-7 and 3-16. And the point of the word is this. Look at verse 4-7. Sin desired to dominate Cain. And what was Cain's responsibility? To master it, to suppress it, to subdue it. And that's exactly what the curse is to the woman. The woman would desire to usurp the role of a man and take the authority, just like Eve did in the garden. And man would have to suppress it, which is the very thing Adam failed to do in the garden at the temptation. See, Adam let Eve lead him into sin, and now he was stuck with having to fight her leadership the rest of his days. And some of you are saying, well, that sounds awful like my marriage. But now you maybe know why. And see, from Genesis 3.16, you have the battle of the sexes. This also explains why there's a feminist movement, gentlemen. They desired, she desires to control you. It's part of the curse. So there's been male chauvinism in a feminist movement from Genesis 3.16 on. So in summary, we have women seeking the throne, if you use that analogy, men trying to stay on the throne, and marriage turns out to be one big struggle to control the throne. This is why there is marital conflict. Marriage has become a sort of game of thrones. In Eve's sin, she took over the leadership, and that became the sinful tendency of every woman since her fateful decision. In Adam's sin, he abandoned his leadership, and every man has to struggle to maintain leadership for the rest of the time that man lives on earth. Now, what does this conflict lead to? Divorce. But don't get along. You know it. You know people. You, you, maybe you're married or have been married to a man. Or your husband is, is passive. And as a wife, you want him to lead, and, right? To fill his role. You may not understand why he doesn't do that, because it's part of the curse. He's got to lead, but you know, one of the common complaints I get when I do marriage counseling is my husband is a passive leader. Doesn't take leadership in the home. And you know what the comic play of the husband towards the wife is. She's trying to control everything. She's trying to take control, trying to lead the relationship. And so you, you deal with that in the marriage, and over time, what happens? It's not worth it, you say, and so people divorce. Now, I want everyone to turn to Matthew 19. When you understand the permanent oneness from Genesis chapter 2, the conflict in, in, in the marriage relationship and what that leads to divorce, you can now understand when Jesus asked this question about divorce in Matthew 19, starting in verse 3.
And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer one flesh, but two. Got that? They're no longer two, but one flesh. Excuse me. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now watch, this makes perfect sense. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? What verse are they referring to? Leviticus 24, 1 through 4, okay? Now look what he says. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. When did the hardness of heart begin? At the fall of man. When did the stress and the, and the, the struggle of, of the relationship between the man and woman begin? At the fall. It was all a part of the curse. So Jesus answers the question about divorce, saying Moses understood that divorce is a reality because of the hardness of man's heart. And that comes from the curse. This is why Moses commanded one to give a certificate of divorce. But was it that way from the beginning? No. What was Genesis 2, 23, 24, 25? Remember that? The two become one. It's a permanent oneness. So we see divorce as a result of, it's nothing more than a symptom of man's sinfulness that stems from the curse. It wasn't that it was always, always going to be allowed. No, it's because of sin. That marriage is hard. People don't get along. And some people are going to bail on their relationship. Now Jesus answers that question kind of clearly. It's because of the hardness of our hearts. Folks, we got through three chapters in Genesis, <laughs> and we're out of time. But we'll pick this up next week. We'll take a close look at what the rest of the Old Testament says about divorce before we dive into what the New Testament says about divorce. By the time we're done studying what the Scriptures say about divorce, my prayer is that there'll be no more confusion on this issue. And you see how consistently clear God is in both the Old and New Testaments. He said it been this way from the very beginning. Um, as you can tell, I've had some skin cancers, you know, outpatient surgery, and I had to go back on Thursday because it was of some bleeding. And I'm sitting there at the dermatologist, and you're waiting, and love it or listed is on. Okay, and I'm sitting there watching, it, and I go back, and it, they have another TV in the other room, and so. I'll, I'm watching it, and they're doing their stuff with, the, with my ear and everything. And I asked the, the, the two young ladies, uh, particularly the, the, she must have been 25, 3 years old. I said, you know, do you own a home? Because of Love It Listed, and we were talking, and she said she does. And so I naively, and I'm not the most perceptive male, assumed then she would be, of course, married and own a home with her husband. So you own a home with your husband? She says, no. I'm not married, we're just living together, and we, we own a home in Ording. So I asked her, well, why, why haven't you got married? She says, well, my husband's older, or my 
boyfriend's older than me, and he wants kids, and I don't want kids until he gets more serious, but we're not married. I went in to get, you may know that I had broken my glasses, and I had to get a new pair, and I'm trying to get them adjusted, so I went up on Saturday to the uh, eye doctor place, the optician, to adjust the glasses. Started talking to the lady, and uh, she was, well, not quite my age, but found out that she was uh, not married either, but she had two children. Her case was she lived with her husband for 11 years. They decided to have children, but they never got married. And I asked her if she ever thought about getting married, and what was her reasons for not getting married, and so on and so forth. And it was just this, this week, this stark reality was thrown in my face. And, and you can understand that marriage is not a popular custom anymore. A lot of people just hook up for however how long. Sometimes they bring a child in a relationship, which isn't a good thing. And by the way, those children that are growing up, the, the, the two girls are growing up with this mother and the husband isn't there, you know how it's going to turn out for them. But why aren't people marrying and why aren't they staying together? Well, now you know, don't you? Marriage is it, 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 it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing because it's created by God. It's an opportunity for us to, to display his glory. But right now, because of the curse and because of our sin, it's work. I can tell you there are plenty of times that my wife is not happy with me. And vice versa. And I don't know how marriage is with unbelievers or non-believers, how they stick. Because I don't know how we would have stayed together if it wasn't for a commitment to the Lord and to each other. So that's a little bit about divorce, and we'll get into it more in depth next week. But again, the idea is it's a permanent oneness, a monogamous, lifelong relationship between a male and a female. And that divorce was allowed by Moses because of the curse and man's sinfulness. But it was never that way, folks, from the beginning. Because we live in a culture and in a world, and that world has influenced you and the church and in society to divorce and remarry as often as you drink a cup of water. And that is not God's intention. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for your words to us this morning. And I ask that your words would strike deep within us and then search our hearts. Will you teach us your ways and educate us about this idea of divorce? And Lord, that this would serve as a fuel or an encouragement to work on our marriages, that they may be more God-honoring to you. And all God's people said, amen. I'd like you to just think of this application point. If it ever comes up here, here we go. I want you to just do something that some of you already do, done, but everyone do it. Review the sermon and answer questions I'll send out later today or tomorrow. Okay? Stand with me. We'll sing with a song. And then five minutes after 
the song will start our, our annual business meeting. Okay? Very good. Did I tell you to take a seat? Jeez. You're just like Israel, you unruly children. <laughs> Let me pray, okay? Fathers, we come before you and we'll open our Bibles this morning. We want to hear from you. We acknowledge that you are a creator, that you are our king, that you are our savior, and you are our Lord. And we are to submit our lives to you. And so even right now, Lord, I ask that your spirit would speak through me to bring glory to you and, and to the Son and to the, the Spirit, that you would build up this local body here at Bible Chapel, that we would be encouraged, that we would be challenged, that perhaps even some of us would be convicted, but that that would not come from me, but from you, through the work of the Holy Spirit within us. So give us hearts that are soft before you, minds to understand, and eyes to see what it is that you have for us this morning. Be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll continue our series, Counterculture, Living a Righteous Life. And we're going to talk about a subject that's got a lot of confusion, and it's going to take some time. But um, I want to begin by, I discovered this in my research for the sermon uh, this week. Actually, it was last week. But um, this is from Armand Nikolai. You ever never heard of him? I hadn't. Um, he was a medical doctor and a clinical professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School in the Massachusetts General Hospital. His clinical work and research focused on the impact of absent parents on the emotional development of children and young adults. He was the editor and co-author of the classic The Harvard Graduate or Harvard, Harvard Guide to Psychiatry and was also a founding board member of the Family Research Council, whom I'm sure some of you are aware of, that organization. Almost 42 years ago, he was interviewed by Christianity Today. And the article was published in the May 25th, 1979 Christianity Today magazine. I discovered this in two separate readings in preparation for this message. The title of the article was The Fractured Family, following it into the future. And while not claiming to be a prophet, uh, Dr. Armand Nikolai is, however, a believer in Jesus Christ, and I was absolutely fascinated at the accuracy of some of his claims over 40 years later. So we're talking May 25th, 1979. It is January 31st, 2021, almost 42 years later. I'm going to just read you a portion of this interview. And I quote, he says, certain trends prevalent today will incapacitate the family, destroy its integrity, and cause its members to suffer such crippling emotional conflict that they will become an intolerable burden to society. If any one factor characterizes the emotional stability of an individual, it is the quality of the relationship he or she experiences as a child with both parents. 
Conversely, if people suffering from severe non-organic emotional illness have one experience in common, it is the absence of a parent through death, divorce, etc. A patient's inaccessibility, either physically or emotionally or both, can profoundly influence a child's emotional health. Let me explain something here because he got a little technical. Most people who have a non-organic, and what he means by that is they, they, had, they do not have a physically induced illness, but rather they have an emotionally induced illness, have in common one thing, a wrong relationship in their childhood to their parents. He goes on to suggest that if we decide to come up with a society without families, which is the trend today, now listen to this, we will have such mental and emotional monsters that in the next generation that there will be no way for society to cope with them. We saw those monsters and emotionally crippled kids that can't handle working hard, that can't handle any sort of stress, and that have no respect for authority and riot and protest and destroy and loot with no conscience, no guilt. We saw it this past summer. Now, here's another direct quote from the article. What has been shown to contribute most to the emotional development of a child is the close, warm, sustained, and continuous relationship with both parents. Yet certain trends in our society make this most difficult. Well, now Dr. Nikolai is going to go on to suggest what these trends that are causing the destruction of the family and are creating a generation of emotional cripples, emotionally weak people. Number six, married women with children working outside the home. I quote, my clinical experience indicates clearly that no woman or women with young children can do both at the same time without sacrificing either the quality of work or the quality of childcare. And again, I say to you that our kids are who they are today because I was working, Eric was at home with the kids. And we sacrificed, from a financial perspective, as you know, in today's world. I don't know how you would do it living in Washington State with the cost of living so here. But this is, again, 1979. Number five, the tendency for families to move frequently. He says 50% of the U.S. population lived at a different address five years ago. Consequently, young people have no sense of roots, have no concept of extended friendships. Number four, the invasion of television into the home. One-fifth of the lifetime of the next generation will be spent watching television. Remember the latchkey kids, remember that phrase? You heard of that? Kids that would come home in the 80s and latchkey in the house and they were no supervision and they would just watch television. If you live to be 80 years of age and you're an average, you will have watched television a total of 4,000 days of your life. People watch thousands of days of television programming, and what does that programming promote in regards to the family? It's an anti-family agenda at one level or another. Number three, the lack of controls in our society. By this, he is referring to no moral standards. I think we've seen that today. And when a society has no moral standards, what invariably results is deep moral confusion. 
when you have deep moral confusion in the life of an individual, you always have a tremendous amount of guilt. And a tremendous amount of guilt leads people to compensate with behavior, and usually it's aberrant behavior. And the Dr. Nikolai goes on to point out that no standards in a society will cause people to be unable to control their impulses. There will be a rise in violent crimes. There will be a wildness to our sex activities. Homosexuality and perversion will explode in popularity in the next generation. I can say that that has happened. If you have a brain and eyes and ears. But two, a lack of communication in the home. Studying a small town in the United States indicated that the average father spent an average of 37 seconds a day with his young sons. And let me summarize these trends for us this morning. Married women with children working outside the home, the tendencies for families to move frequently, the invasion of television, the lack of controls in our society, and a lack of communication in the home. All of these contribute to the breakdown of the family, which will create a generation of emotional cripples. Emotionally misfit people. But here's the thing. The first one on his list, I haven't even mentioned it yet. The number one cause of emotional problems in the lives of the next generation is divorce. He goes on to say this, I quote, the trend towards quick and easy divorce and the ever-increasing divorce rate subjects more, than, more and more children to physically and emotionally absent parents. The divorce rate has risen 700% in this century and it continues to rise. There is now one divorce for every 1.8 marriages. Again, this is from May 25th, 1979, he was saying this. He goes on to say over 1 million children a year are involved in divorce cases and 13 million children under 18 now have one or both parents missing. Here is his conclusion, and I read this. First, the quality of family life will continue to deteriorate, producing a society with a higher incidence of mental illness than ever before. He says 95% of our hospital beds, he believes, will be taken up by mentally ill people. I don't think that's taking place. I know there's been a rise in mental illness. This illness will be characterized primarily by a lack of self-control. We can expect the assassination of people and authority to be frequent occurrences. That hasn't happened. But crimes of violence will increase. That's happened. Even those in the family, the suicide rate will increase. As sexuality becomes more unlimited, more separated from family and emotional commitment, the deadening effect will cause more bizarre experimenting and widespread perversion. That has happened. See, a basic building block of any society, of course, is the family. And when that foundation is attacked and eventually weakened, the results are just utterly devastating. Broken homes produce dysfunctional families, which typically produce these types of children. Number one is you have the insecure child. Children with no sense of security because, a physically, because of a physically or emotionally absent parent. So it's the insecure child. Number two, you have the rebellious child. Children with no concept of authority. And number three, the immoral child. Children with no sense of morality. 
One of the first things Eric and I noticed after living in the Pacific Northwest for about a year, I would say, was the number of dysfunctional families and broken homes. Our children had become friends with a young man who grew up without a mother, a girl who was being raised by her grandmother and her husband because her biological parents were drug users, and thank God for those grandparents. And another young man whose parents were never married, and the father was rarely at home. And this does not even include other friends of my children who have come from divorced homes. Now, if you're like me, you probably have some confusion about what the Bible says concerning divorce. And I've learned that there are basically four types of thoughts about divorce. And we typically fall into one of the four thought categories. Number one is some people think no divorce for any reason under any circumstances, for anything at all. Number two, some people think divorce under certain circumstances, but no remarriage. Number three, some people think divorce and remarriage anytime or any, for any reason at all. And number four, some people think divorce and remarriage, but not for anything at all, and only under certain circumstances. Now, take encouragement that there was confusion about divorce during the time of Jesus. And he sets the record straight and kind of does it in a rather succinct way on this topic in his Sermon on the Mount. This is a verse we're going to look at this morning to an extent. This will end up being a two or even three-part series on divorce because of how much the Bible speaks on this issue and because there's so much confusion out there. And I want you to understand what is very clear in the Bible and clear up any confusion that you may have about divorce. I want you to most importantly clearly see God's heart in this matter. Matthew 5, 31, 32, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, as we look at the Word of God to discover what the Bible says about divorce, we find ourselves exactly where the Pharisees are during the time of this sermon. They had devised a faulty view of divorce and remarriage. And I'm, again, i got to set the context here for this sermon. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he is dealing with the people who believe that you could buy your your righteous works, be righteous. But as he continues to remind them of God's true standards in this sermon, it exposes their sin and their hypocrisy and the undeniable fact that they could not meet God's standards. I mean, if you even thought about, you know, adultery in your heart, you were guilty of it in God's eyes. If you were angry at a brother or sister or person, it's as if you murdered them in the eyes of God. So what do you do when you can't meet a standard? Do what everyone else does. They invented their own standards, called it God's standards, and because this relieved their guilt, and it provided them with a false sense of security with God. The scribes and Pharisees misinterpreted the Bible to fit their own view, and they found a verse or two to justify their position. So any, that's how any heresy starts, by the way. So in regard to divorce, they decide 
that you ought to be able to leave your wife whenever you want. And the scripture they twisted around was Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. I'm going to read it for you. We're going to go into it more in depth next week. But you can just listen to this. It says this. This is Moses speaking. And again, Deuteronomy is what? Kind of summary of the Pentateuch, right? It says this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, so the second husband dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. In other words, the reason that you can, in this case, you're sending someone away, if they go and marry someone else, okay, they've committed adultery. Because you'll find out that God never condones divorce for the most part. And so what you had in society was people just committing adultery over and over and over again. You divorce for not a biblical reason, they marry, and guess what happens in that relationship? Adultery is happening. So there was this proliferation of adultery going on. And what the Pharisees did is they invented their view to justify their sin, and then they misinterpreted a verse to fit their justification. And so what you have in verse 31 of Matthew 5 up there is, in their view of how they understood divorce, and in verse 32, you have Jesus' view. See, and what the people were told and what they heard was wrong. And what Jesus is telling them is right. They tolerate divorce for any reason, and Jesus doesn't tolerate divorce for any reason. You do know that, right? He does not tolerate divorce for any reason. Now, to get a, a grasp on the topic of divorce, and this is where it gets so confused, because I can see the confusion in some of your faces, we're going to go right back to the very beginning and get your Bibles out and turn to this verse, Genesis 2, 23 to 25. Notice that this is before Genesis chapter 3. There's no sin in the world. It's the creation narrative, the creation story. This is what the verse says. Then the man said... God has created man, and man realizes he's alone, and so God presents him with a woman. And his response, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So in order for us to understand God's view of divorce, we must first understand, guess what? God's view of marriage. So God brought together the first man and the first woman in a monogamous, lifelong marriage between a male and a female. 
Now notice that it says, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The words hold fast, or your translation may say cleave to or cleave unto, that reveals the nature of the marriage bond in the eyes of God. This was God's intention. Because hold fast carries the idea of being glued to something. They get crazy glue. A man and a woman become stuck in the sense that God has stuck them together. And when two people are glued together, they become one single individual, or as the verse says, one flesh. You see that? Now this, of course, implies a lifelong marriage. So God unites a man and a woman in a unique and profound biological and spiritual bond, and marriage is by God's design to be what? The perfect welding of two people together into a permanent oneness. You got that? A lifelong monogamous relationship between a male and a female. Now this is why Jesus said this in Matthew 19, 6. You can just listen to this verse. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So man and woman is not to divorce or separate what God has joined together. Now since marriage is an institution of God, listen to me, any marriage, whether a Christian marriage or not, is God gluing together or bonding two people together, and that bond is not to be broken by divorce. So sacred is marriage that any violation of that marriage union resulted in the penalty of death. Do you remember last week's sermon? The seventh commandment says you shall not commit adultery. Adultery is sexual involvement outside the bond of marriage and was punishable by death. God has such a high view of marriage that in the last of the Ten Commandments, he says, you shall not cover your neighbor's wife. So even for a married person to desire another partner was so evil that it was one of the ten major sins. God has such a high view of marriage that Jesus says, if anybody looks at a woman to what? Lust for her, or lust after her, what has he done? He's already committed adultery in his heart. So it's so serious that not only is it forbidden to engage in a physical act of adultery, it's even forbidden to think about it. That's how sacred and that's the high view that God has of marriage. And folks, we haven't really dived into the word of God yet into how clear God is on this. Now, what happened to marriage at the fall? This is where I think your eyes will be opened. Let's take a look at that. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. What we're going to do in this, this topic of divorce, we're just going to go through the Bible, kind of chronologically. We'll finish up the Old Testament next week, get the New Testament probably the week after that, and you'll see it's very clear. But what happened to marriage at the fall? Let's take a look at that. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. 
But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So God created Adam, the first man, then Eve. He installed Adam as the head or the leader of the newly formed relationship, and Eve was created to be his helper. At this point in time, and this is what may be, it's just new to us because it's completely foreign to us. We, we don't know what life was like before the fall, but marriage was pure bliss at this point in time in history. I don't even know what that's like. My wife doesn't know what it's like. Nobody here knows what that's like. If I were to say marriage was pure hell, you'd say, okay, I get that one. Yeah, I understand that to an extent, right? But marriage was pure bliss. The man's headship, his leadership, was a loving, caring provision of understanding. The woman's being a helpmate was a loving, caring submissiveness to the one who was given as her leader. It was beautiful. Her heart was totally devoted to him. His heart was totally devoted to her. And according to Genesis 1, 27 and 28, they ruled together. It says this, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, what? Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The dominion, the ruler, and the leadership, both male and female, husband and wife, man and woman, ruled. And it was just bliss. Everything was working great. But marital bliss was about to end. Verse 6 So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And this is such character from Adam. The woman whom you gave to be with me She gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. The blame game. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. A couple things here. Satan just disregarded God's created order, or the chain of command, and bypassed the head of the relationship, Adam, and tempted Eve, the helpmate. Tempted her to usurp Adam's role as the head and take leadership in a relationship. Let me just say this, take leadership in the marriage relationship. And she led the way into sin as Adam, who was with her, apparently stood by as a passive spectator. So the fall of man was due to nothing more than a case of sexual reversal. But the results were devastating on many levels. Let's listen to this, verses 16 and 19. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. 
And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now there are several elements, when you really look at this passage, of the curse that involve relationships. Namely, man suffers from a separated relationship with God. But also, a separated relationship now exists between man and nature. You see that? And a separated relationship now exists between man and his wife. So for our purposes this morning, we're going to look at the separated relationship between a man and a woman. Because as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, the marriage relationship was cursed, like every other human relationship. Did you know that? Well, if you didn't, I'm going to answer it for you right now. How was it cursed? Well, let's look at Genesis 3.16. That supplies the answer. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, you notice at the end of the verse 16, the statement, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Folks, in that one statement, you have the basic problem in marriage. God's original design was a permanent union between a husband and a wife through all of life. But when sin entered the human race, it resulted in a terrible conflict in marriage. And the marriage ideal was shattered. Chaos entered the home. And divorce inevitably became the result. Now, how does this happen? Well, specifically, it is a curse given to the woman in Genesis 3.16. The word rule in Genesis 3.16, it means, listen to this now, to rule or reign from an elevated position. So what happened at the fall is that man was elevated to rule in the marriage relationship. Whereas before man had a kind of a soft kind of dominance and a loving, caring approach with the woman, guess what? Now he is set in a place of ruling with authority. Did you know what happened at the fall? The word rule in 3.16 is a different word than the word for rule in Genesis 1.28. Dominion, rule, it's not the same word. It's a completely different word. The woman then is made immediately subordinate to the man. This explains, ladies, why there is male chauvinism in the world. Because the woman led the way into sin... Part of her curse is that God set man over her to subdue or to control her. The very thing that Adam, or the man, failed to do at the temptation. He should have stepped in and stopped what was going on, but he didn't. However, while God installed man as a ruler over the woman, the woman still has another curse to deal with. She suffers from a desire to rule her husband. How do we know this? Well, the word desire in Genesis 3.16 is used only one other time 
in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, where it speaks of Cain's struggle with mastering sin. Turn to Genesis 4, 7. Genesis 4, 7. Watch this. If you do well, this is God speaking to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desire is for you, but you must not, but you must rule over it. Same word, desire. The same the curse for the woman, that is the desire. Same word here, desire. These verses, you know, they're constructed the same way in the Hebrew, 4.7 and 3.16. And the point of the word is this. Look at verse 4.7. Sin desired to dominate Cain. And what was Cain's responsibility? To master it, to suppress it. Subdue it. And that's exactly what the curse is to the woman. The woman would desire to usurp the role of a man and take the authority, just like Eve did in the garden. And man would have to suppress it, which is the very thing Adam failed to do in the garden at the temptation. See, Adam let Eve lead him into sin, and now he was stuck with having to fight her leadership the rest of his days. And some of you are saying, well, that sounds awful like my marriage. But now you maybe know why. And see, from Genesis 3.16, you have the battle of the sexes. This also explains why there's a feminist movement, gentlemen. They desired, she desires to control you. It's part of the curse. So there's been male chauvinism in a feminist movement from Genesis 3.16 on. So in summary, you know, we have women seeking the throne, if you use that analogy, men trying to stay on the throne, and marriage turns out to be one big struggle to control the throne. This is why there is marital conflict. Marriage has become a sort of game of thrones. In Eve's sin, she took over the leadership, and that became the sinful tendency of every woman since her fateful decision. In Adam's sin, he abandoned his leadership, and every man has to struggle to maintain leadership for the rest of the time that man lives on earth. Now, what does this conflict lead to? Divorce. But don't get along. You know it. You know people. You, you, maybe you're married or have been married to a man. Or your husband is, is passive. And as a wife, you want him to lead, and, right? To fill his role. You may not understand why he doesn't do that, because it's part of the curse. He's got to lead, but you know, one of the common complaints I get when I do marriage counseling is my husband is a passive leader doesn't take leadership in the home. And you know what the comic play of the husband towards the wife is. She's trying to control everything. She's trying to take control, trying to lead the relationship. And so you, you deal with that in the marriage, and over time, what happens? It's not worth it, you say, and so people divorce. Divorce. 
Now, I want everyone to turn to Matthew 19. When you understand the permanent oneness from Genesis chapter 2, the conflict in, in, in the marriage relationship and what that leads to divorce, you can now understand when Jesus asked this question about divorce in Matthew 19, starting in verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer one flesh, but two. Got that? They're no longer two, but one flesh. Excuse me. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now watch, this makes perfect sense. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? What verse are they referring to? Leviticus 24, 1 through 4, okay? Now look what he says. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. When did the hardness of heart begin? At the fall of man. When did the stress and the, and the, the struggle of, of the relationship between the man and woman begin? At the fall. It was all a part of the curse. So Jesus answers the question about divorce, saying Moses understood that divorce is a reality because of the hardness of man's heart. And that comes from the curse. This is why Moses commanded one to give a certificate of divorce. But was it that way from the beginning? No. What was Genesis 2, 23, 24, 25? Remember that? The two become one. It's a permanent oneness. So we see divorce as a result of, it's nothing more than a symptom of man's sinfulness that stems from the curse. It wasn't that it was always, always going to be allowed. No, it's because of sin. That marriage is hard. People don't get along. And some people are going to bail on their relationship. Now Jesus answers that question kind of clearly. It's because of the hardness of our hearts. Folks, we got through Three chapters in Genesis, and we're out of time. But we'll pick this up next week. We'll take a close look at what the rest of the Old Testament says about divorce before we dive into what the New Testament says about divorce. By the time we're done studying what the Scriptures say about divorce, my prayer is that there'll be no more confusion on this issue. And you see how consistently clear God is in both the Old and New Testaments. He said it been this way from the very beginning. Um, as you can tell, I've had some skin cancers, you know, outpatient surgery, and I had to go back on Thursday because it was of some bleeding. And I'm sitting there at the dermatologist, and you're waiting, and love it or listed is on. Okay, and I'm sitting there watching, and I go back, and it, they have another TV in the other room, and so. I'm watching it, and they're doing their stuff with, the, with my ear and everything. 
And I asked the, the, the two young ladies, uh, particularly the, the, she must have been 25, 3 years old. I said, you know, do you own a home? Because of Lovett listed, and we were talking, and she said she does. And so I naively, and I'm not the most perceptive male, assumed then she would be, of course, married and own a home with her husband. So you own a home with your husband? She says, no, I'm not married. We're just living together, and we, we own a home in Ording. So I asked her, well, why, why haven't you got married? She says, well, my husband's older, or my boyfriend's older than me, and he wants kids, and I don't want kids until he gets more serious. But we're not married. I went in to get, you know, you may know that I had broken my glasses and I had to get a new pair and I'm trying to get them adjusted. So I went up on Saturday to the uh, eye doctor place, the optician to adjust the glasses. Started talking to the lady and uh, she was, well, not quite my age, but found out that she was uh, not married either, but she had two children. Her case was she lived with her husband for 11 years. They decided to have children, but they never got married. And I asked her if she ever thought about getting married, and what was her reasons for not getting married, and so on and so forth. And it was just this, this week, this stark reality was thrown in my face. And, and you can understand that marriage is not a popular custom anymore. A lot of people just hook up for however how long. Sometimes they bring a child in a relationship, which isn't a good thing. And by the way, those children that are growing up, the, the, the two girls are growing up with this mother and the husband isn't there, you know how it's going to turn out for them. But why aren't people marrying and why aren't they staying together? Well, now you know, don't you? Marriage is it, 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 it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing because it's created by God. It's an opportunity for us to, to display his glory. But right now, because of the curse and because of our sin, it's work. I can tell you there are plenty of times that my wife is not happy with me. And vice versa. And I don't know how marriage is with unbelievers or non-believers, how they stick. Because I don't know how we would have stayed together if it wasn't for a commitment to the Lord and to each other. So that's a little bit about divorce, and we'll get into it more in depth next week. But again, the idea is it's a permanent oneness, a monogamous, lifelong relationship between a male and a female. And that divorce was allowed by Moses because of the curse and man's sinfulness. But it was never that way, folks, from the beginning. Because we live in a culture and in a world, and that world has influenced you and the church and in society to divorce and remarry as often as you drink a cup of water. And that is not God's intention. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for your words to us this morning. And I ask that your words would strike deep within us and then search our hearts. Or you would teach us your ways and educate us about this idea of divorce. 
And Lord, that this would serve as a fuel or an encouragement to work on our marriages, that they may be more God-honoring to you. And all God's people said, amen. I'd like you to just think of this application point. If it ever comes up here, here we go. Why don't you just do something that some of you already do, done, but everyone do it. Review the sermon and answer questions I'll send out later today or tomorrow. Okay? Stand with me. We'll sing with a song. And then five minutes after the song, we'll start our, our annual business meeting. Okay? Very good.
Did I tell you to take a seat? Jeez. You're just like Israel, you unruly children. <laughs> Let me pray, okay? Fathers, we come before you and we'll open our Bibles this morning. We want to hear from you. We acknowledge that you are a creator, that you are our king, that you are our savior, and you are our Lord. And we are to submit our lives to you. And so even right now, Lord, I ask that your spirit would speak through me to bring glory to you and, and to the Son and to the, the Spirit, that you would build up this local body here at Bible Chapel, that we would be encouraged, that we would be challenged, that perhaps even some of us would be convicted, but that that would not come from me, but from you, through the work of the Holy Spirit within us. So give us hearts that are soft before you, minds to understand, and eyes to see what it is that you have for us this morning. Be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll continue our series, Counterculture, Living a Righteous Life. And we're going to talk about a subject that's got a lot of confusion, and it's going to take some time. But um, I want to begin by, I discovered this in my research for the sermon uh, this week. Actually, it was last week. But um, this is from Armand Nikolai. You ever never heard of him? I hadn't. Um, he was a medical doctor and a clinical professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School in the Massachusetts General Hospital. His clinical work and research focused on the impact of absent parents on the emotional development of children and young adults. He was the editor and co-author of the classic The Harvard Graduate or Harvard, Harvard Guide to Psychiatry and was also a founding board member of the Family Research Council, whom I'm sure some of you are aware of, that organization. Almost 42 years ago, he was interviewed by Christianity Today. And the article was published in the May 25th, 1979 Christianity Today magazine. I discovered this in two separate readings in preparation for this message. The title of the article was The Fractured Family, Following It Into the Future. And while not claiming to be a prophet, uh, Dr. Armand Nikolai is, however, a believer in Jesus Christ, and I was absolutely fascinated at the accuracy of some of his claims over 40 years later. So we're talking May 25th, 1979. It is January 31st, 2021, almost 42 years later. I'm going to just read you a portion of this interview. And I quote, he says, certain trends prevalent today will incapacitate the family destroy its integrity and cause its members to suffer such crippling emotional conflict that they will become an intolerable burden to society. If any one factor characterizes the emotional stability of an individual, it is the quality of the relationship he or she experiences as a child with both parents. Conversely, if people suffering from severe non-organic emotional illness have one experience in common, it is the absence of a parent through death, divorce, etc. 
A patient's inaccessibility, either physically or emotionally, or both, can profoundly influence a child's emotional health. Let me explain something here, because he got a little technical. Most people who have a non-organic, and what he means by that is they, they, had, they do not have a physically induced illness, but rather they have an emotionally induced illness, have in common one thing, a wrong relationship in their childhood to their parents. He goes on to suggest that if we decide to come up with a society without families, which is the trend today, now listen to this, we will have such mental and emotional monsters that in the next generation that there will be no way for society to cope with them. We saw those monsters and emotionally crippled kids that can't handle working hard, that can't handle any sort of stress, and that have no respect for authority and riot and protest and destroy and loot with no conscience, no guilt. We saw it this past summer. Now, here's another direct quote from the article. What has been shown to contribute most to the emotional development of a child is a close, warm, sustained, and continuous relationship with both parents. Yet certain trends in our society make this most difficult. Well, now Dr. Nikolai is going to go on to suggest what these trends that are causing the destruction of the family and are creating a generation of emotional cripples, emotionally weak people. Number six, married women with children working outside the home. I quote, my clinical experience indicates clearly that no woman or women with young children can do both at the same time without sacrificing either the quality of work or the quality of child care. And again, I say to you that our kids are who they are today because I was working and Eric was at home with the kids. And we sacrificed, from a financial perspective, as you know, in today's world. I don't know how you would do it living in Washington State with the cost of living over here. But this is again 1979. Number five, the tendency for families to move frequently. He says 50% of the U.S. population lived at a different address five years ago. Consequently, young people have no sense of roots, have no concept of extended friendships. Number four, the invasion of television into the home. One-fifth of the lifetime of the next generation will be spent watching television. You've heard of the latchkey kids, remember that phrase? You heard of that? Kids that would come home in the 80s and latchkey in the house and they were no supervision and they would just watch television. If you live to be 80 years of age and you're an average, you will have watched television a total of 4,000 days of your life. People watch thousands of days of television programming, and what does that programming promote in regards to the family? It's an anti-family agenda at one level or another. Number three, the lack of controls in our society. By this, he is referring to no moral standards. I think we've seen that today. And when society has no moral standards, what invariably results is deep moral confusion. When you have deep moral confusion in the life of an individual, you always have a tremendous amount of guilt. And a tremendous amount of guilt leads people to compensate 
with behavior, and usually it's aberrant behavior. And the Dr. Nikolai goes on to point out that no standards in a society will cause people to be unable to control their impulses. There'll be a rise in violent crimes. There'll be a wildness to our sex activities. Homosexuality and perversion will explode in popularity in the next generation. I can say that that has happened. If you have a brain and eyes and ears. But two, a lack of communication in the home. Studying a small town in the United States indicated that the average father spent an average of 37 seconds a day with his young sons. And let me summarize these trends for us this morning. Married women with children working outside the home, the tendency is for families to move frequently, the invasion of television, the lack of controls in our society, and a lack of communication in the home. All of these contribute to the breakdown of the family, which will create a generation of emotional cripples. Emotionally misfit people. But here's the thing. The first one on his list, I haven't even mentioned it yet. The number one cause of emotional problems in the lives of the next generation is divorce. He goes on to say this, I quote, the trend towards quick and easy divorce and the ever-increasing divorce rate subjects more, than, more and more children to physically and emotionally absent parents. The divorce rate has risen 700% in this century and it continues to rise. There is now one divorce for every 1.8 marriages. Again, this is from May 25th, 1979, he was saying this. He goes on to say over 1 million children a year are involved in divorce cases and 13 million children under 18 now have one or both parents missing. Here is his conclusion, I read this. First, the quality of family life will continue to deteriorate, producing a society with a higher incidence of mental illness than ever before. He says 95% of our hospital beds, he believes, will be taken up by mentally ill people. I don't think that's taking place. But I know there's been a rise in mental illness. This illness will be characterized primarily by a lack of self-control. We can expect the assassination of people and authority to be frequent occurrences. That hasn't happened. But crimes of violence will increase. That's happened. Even those in the family, the suicide rate will increase. As sexuality becomes more unlimited, more separated from family and emotional commitment, the deadening effect will cause more bizarre experimenting and widespread perversion. That has happened. See, a basic building block of any society, of course, is the family. And when that foundation is attacked and eventually weakened, the results are just utterly devastating. Broken homes produce dysfunctional families, which typically produce these types of children. Number one is you have the insecure child. Children with no sense of security because, a physically, because of a physically or emotionally absent parent. So that's the insecure child. Number two, you have the rebellious child. Children with no concept of authority. And number three, the immoral child. Children with no sense of morality. One of the first things Eric and I noticed after living in the Pacific Northwest for about a year, I would say, it was the number of dysfunctional families and broken homes. Our children had become friends with a young man who grew up without a mother, 
a girl who is being raised by her grandmother and her husband because her biological parents were drug users, and thank God for those grandparents. And another young man whose parents were never married and the father was rarely at home. And this does not even include other friends of my children who have come from divorced homes. Now, if you're like me, you probably have some confusion about what the Bible says concerning divorce. And I've learned that there are basically four types of thoughts about divorce. And we typically fall into one of the four thought categories. Number one is some people think no divorce for any reason, under any circumstances, for anything at all. Number two, some people think divorce under certain circumstances, but no remarriage. Number three, some people think divorce and remarriage anytime or any, for any reason at all. And number four, some people think divorce and remarriage, but not for anything at all, and only under certain circumstances. Now, take encouragement that there was confusion about divorce during the time of Jesus. And he sets the record straight and kind of does it in a rather succinct way on this topic in his Sermon on the Mount. This is a verse we're going to look at this morning to an extent. This will end up being a two or even three-part series on divorce because of how much the Bible speaks on this issue and because there's so much confusion out there. And I want you to understand what is very clear in the Bible and clear up any confusion that you may have about divorce. I want you to most importantly clearly see God's heart in this matter. Matthew 5, 31, 32, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that Everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, as we look at the Word of God to discover what the Bible says about divorce, we find ourselves exactly where the Pharisees are during the time of this sermon. They had devised a faulty view of divorce and remarriage. And again, I gotta set the context here for this sermon. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he is dealing with the people who believe that you could, by your, your righteous works, be righteous. But as he continues to remind them of God's true standards in this sermon, it exposes their sin and their hypocrisy and the undeniable fact that they could not meet God's standards. I mean, if you even thought about, you know, adultery in your heart, you were guilty of it in God's eyes. If you were angry at a brother or sister or person, it's as if you murdered them in the eyes of God. So what do you do when you can't meet a standard? Do what everyone else does. They invented their own standards, called it God's standards, and because this relieved their guilt, and it provided them with a false sense of security with God. The scribes and the Pharisees misinterpreted the Bible to fit their own view, and they found a verse or two to justify their position. So any, that's how any heresy starts, by the way. So in regard to divorce, they decide that you ought to be able to leave your wife whenever you want. And the scripture they twisted around was Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. I'm going to read it for you. We're going to go into it more in depth next week. 
You can just listen to this. It says this. This is Moses speaking. Again, Deuteronomy is what? Kind of summary of the Pentateuch, right? It says this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, so the second husband dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. In other words, the reason that you can, in this case, you're sending someone away, if they go and marry someone else, okay, they've committed adultery. Because you'll find out that God never condones divorce for the most part. So what you had in society was people just committing adultery over and over and over again. You divorce for not a biblical reason, they marry, and guess what happens in that relationship? Adultery is happening. So there was this proliferation of adultery going on. And what the Pharisees did is they invented their view to justify their sin, and then they misinterpreted a verse to fit their justification. And so what you have in verse 31 of Matthew 5 up there is, in their view of how they understood divorce, and in verse 32, you have Jesus' view. See, and what the people were told and what they heard was wrong. And what Jesus is telling them is right. They tolerate divorce for any reason, and Jesus doesn't tolerate divorce for any reason. You do know that, right? He does not tolerate divorce for any reason. Now, to get a, a grasp on the topic of divorce, and this is where it gets so confused, because I can see the confusion in some of your faces, we're going to go right back to the very beginning and get your Bibles out and turn to this verse, Genesis 2, 23 to 25. Notice that this is before Genesis chapter 3. There's no sin in the world. It's the creation narrative, the creation story. This is what the verse says. Then the man said... God has created man, and man realizes he's alone, and so God presents him with a woman. And his response, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and his, his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So in order for us to understand God's view of divorce, we must first understand, guess what? God's view of marriage. So God brought together the first man and the first woman in a monogamous, lifelong marriage between a male and a female. Now notice that it says, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The words hold fast, or your translation may say cleave to or cleave unto, that reveals the nature of the marriage bond in the eyes of God. 
This was God's intention. Because hold fast carries the idea of being glued to something. Think of crazy glue. A man and a woman become stuck in the sense that God has stuck them together. And when two people are glued together, they become one single individual, or as the verse says, one flesh. You see that? Now this, of course, implies a lifelong marriage. So God unites a man and a woman in a unique and profound biological and spiritual bond, and marriage ends by God's design to be what? The perfect welding of two people together into a permanent oneness. Got that? A lifelong monogamous relationship between a male and a female. Now, this is why Jesus said this in Matthew 19, 6. You can just listen to this verse. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So man and woman is not to divorce or separate what God has joined together. Now, since marriage is an institution of God, listen to me, any marriage, whether a Christian marriage or not, is God gluing together or bonding two people together, and that bond is not to be broken by divorce. So sacred is marriage that any violation of that marriage union resulted in the penalty of death. Do you remember last week's sermon? The seventh commandment says you shall not commit adultery. Adultery is sexual involvement outside the bond of marriage and was punishable by death. God has such a high view of marriage that in the last of the Ten Commandments, he says, you shall not cover your neighbor's wife. So even for a married person to desire another partner was so evil that it was one of the ten major sins. God has such a high view of marriage that Jesus says, if anybody looks at a woman to what? Lust for her, or lust after her, what has he done? He's already committed adultery in his heart. So it's so serious that not only is it forbidden to engage in a physical act of adultery, it's even forbidden to think about it. That's how sacred and that's the high view that God has of marriage. And folks, we haven't even really dived into the word of God yet into how clear God is on this. Now, what happened to marriage at the fall? This is where I think your eyes will be opened. Let's take a look at that. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. What we're going to do in this, this topic of divorce, we're just going to go through the Bible, kind of chronologically. We'll finish up the Old Testament next week, get the New Testament probably the week after that, and you'll see it's very clear. But what happened to marriage at the fall? Let's take a look at that. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So God created Adam, the first man, then Eve, he installed Adam as the head or the leader of the newly formed relationship, and Eve was created to be his helper. 
At this point in time, and this is what may be, it's just new to us because it's completely foreign to us. We, we don't know what life was like before the fall, but marriage is pure bliss at this point in time in history. I don't know what that's like. Now watch us know what it's like. Nobody in here knows what that's like. If I were to say marriage is pure hell, you'd say, okay, I get that one. Yeah, I understand that to an extent, right? But marriage was pure bliss. The man's headship, his leadership, was a loving, caring provision of understanding. The woman's being a helpmate was a loving, caring submissiveness to the one who was given as her leader. It was beautiful. Her heart was totally devoted to him. His heart was totally devoted to her. And according to Genesis 1, 27 and 28, they ruled together. It says this, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, what? Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The dominion, the ruler, and the leadership. Both male and female, husband and wife, man and woman, ruled. And it was just bliss. Everything was working great. But marital bliss was about to end. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And this is such character from Adam. The woman whom you gave to be with me she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. The blame game. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. A couple things here. Satan just disregarded God's created order, or the chain of command, and bypassed the head of the relationship, Adam, and tempted Eve, the helpmate, tempted her to usurp Adam's role as the head and take leadership in the relationship. Let me just say this, take leadership in the marriage relationship. And she led the way into sin as Adam, who was with her, apparently stood by as a passive spectator. So the fall of man was due to nothing more than a case of sex role reversal. But the results were devastating on many levels. Listen to this, verses 16 and 19. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, 
For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now there are several elements, when you really look at this passage, of the curse that involve relationships. Namely, man suffers from a separated relationship with God. But also, a separated relationship now exists between man and nature. You see that? And a separated relationship now exists between man and his wife. So for our purposes this morning, we're going to look at the separated relationship between a man and a woman. Because as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, the marriage relationship was cursed, like every other human relationship. Did you know that? Well, if you didn't, I'm going to answer it for you right now. How was it cursed? Well, let's look at Genesis 3.16. That supplies the answer. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, you notice at the end of the verse 16, his statement, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Folks, in that one statement, you have the basic problem in marriage. God's original design was a permanent union between a husband and a wife through all of life. But when sin entered the human race, it resulted in a terrible conflict in marriage, and the marriage ideal was shattered, chaos entered the home, and divorce inevitably became the result. Now, how does this happen? Well, specifically, it is a curse given to the woman in Genesis 3.16. The word rule in Genesis 3.16, it means, listen to this now, to rule or reign from an elevated position. So what happened at the fall is that man was elevated to rule in the marriage relationship. Whereas before man had a kind of a soft kind of dominance and a loving, caring approach with the woman, guess what? Now he is set in a place of ruling with authority. Did you know what happened at the fall? The word rule in 3.16 is a different word than the word for rule in Genesis 1.28. Dominion, rule, it's not the same word. It's a completely different word. The woman, then, is made immediately subordinate to the man. This explains, ladies, why there is male chauvinism in the world. Because the woman led the way into sin... Part of her curse is that God set man over her to subdue or to control her. The very thing that Adam, or the man, failed to do at the temptation. He should have stepped in and stopped what was going on, but he didn't. However, while God installed man as a ruler over the woman, the woman still has another curse to deal with. She suffers from a desire to rule her husband. How do we know this? Well, the word desire in Genesis 3.16 is used only one other time in the Pentateuch, of the first five books of the Bible, where it speaks of Cain's struggle with mastering sin. Turn to Genesis 4.7. Genesis 4.7. Watch this. If you do well, this is God speaking to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desire is for you, but you must not, but you must rule over it. 
Same word, desire. The same the curse for the woman is the desire. Same word here, desire. These verses, you know, they're constructed the same way in the Hebrew, 4.7 and 3.16. And the point of the word is this. Look at verse 4.7. Sin desired to dominate Cain. And what was Cain's responsibility? To master it, to suppress it, to subdue it. And that's exactly what the curse is to the woman. The woman would desire to usurp the role of a man and take the authority, just like Eve did in the garden. And man would have to suppress it, which is the very thing Adam failed to do in the garden at the temptation. See, Adam let Eve lead him into sin, and now he was stuck with having to fight her leadership the rest of his days. And some of you are saying, well, that sounds awful like my marriage. But now you maybe know why. And see, from Genesis 3.16, you have the battle of the sexes. This also explains why there's a feminist movement, gentlemen. They desired, she desires to control you. It's part of the curse. So there's been male chauvinism in a feminist movement from Genesis 3.16 on. So in summary, in a, we have women seeking the throne, if you use that analogy, men trying to stay on the throne, and marriage turns out to be one big struggle to control the throne. This is why there is marital conflict. Marriage has become a sort of game of thrones. In Eve's sin, she took over the leadership, and that became the sinful tendency of every woman since her fateful decision. In Adam's sin, he abandoned his leadership, and every man has to struggle to maintain leadership for the rest of the time that man lives on earth. Now, what does this conflict lead to? Divorce. But don't get along. You know it. You know people. You, you, maybe you're married or have been married to a man. Or your husband is, is passive. And as a wife, you want him to lead, and, right? To fill his role. You may not understand why he doesn't do that, because it's part of the curse. He's got to lead, but you know, one of the common complaints I get when I do marriage counseling is my husband is a passive leader. Doesn't take leadership in the home. And you know what the common complaint of the husband towards the wife is. She's trying to control everything. She's trying to take control, trying to lead the relationship. And so you, you deal with that in the marriage, and over time, what happens? It's not worth it, you say, and so people divorce. Now, whenever you turn to Matthew 19, when you understand the permanent oneness from Genesis chapter 2, the conflict in, in, in the marriage relationship and what that leads to divorce, you can now understand when Jesus is asked this question about divorce in Matthew 19, starting in verse 3.
And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer one flesh, but two. Got that? Well, they're no longer two, but one flesh. Excuse me. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now watch, this makes perfect sense. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? What verse are they referring to? Leviticus 24, 1 through 4, okay? Now look what he says. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. When did the hardness of heart begin? At the fall of man. When did the stress and the, and the, the struggle of, of the relationship between the man and woman begin? At the fall. It was all a part of the curse. So Jesus answers the question about divorce, saying Moses understood that divorce is a reality because of the hardness of man's heart. And that comes from the curse. This is why Moses commanded one to give a certificate of divorce. But was it that way from the beginning? No. What was Genesis 2, 23, 24, 25? Remember that? The two become one. It's a permanent oneness. So we see divorce as a result of, it's nothing more than a symptom of man's sinfulness that stems from the curse. It wasn't that it was always, always going to be allowed. No, it's because of sin. That marriage is hard. People don't get along. And some people are going to bail on their relationship. Now Jesus answers that question kind of clearly. It's because of the hardness of our hearts. Folks, we got through Three chapters in Genesis, <laughs> and we're out of time. But we'll pick this up next week. We'll take a close look at what the rest of the Old Testament says about divorce before we dive into what the New Testament says about divorce. By the time we're done studying what the Scriptures say about divorce, my prayer is that there'll be no more confusion on this issue. And you see how consistently clear God is in both the Old and New Testaments. And he said it been this way from the very beginning. Um, as you can tell, I've had some skin cancers, you know, outpatient surgery. And I had to go back on Thursday because it was of some bleeding. And I'm sitting there at the dermatologist and waiting, and Love It or Listed is on. Okay? And I'm sitting there watching, and I go back, and it, they have another TV in the other room, and so I'm watching it, and they're doing their stuff with the with my ear and everything. And I asked the, the, the two young ladies, uh, particularly the, the, she must have been 25, 30 years old. I said, you know, do you own a home? Because of Love It Listed, and we were talking, and she said she does. And so I naively, and I'm not the most perceptive male, assumed then she would be, of course, married and own a home with her husband. So you own a home with your husband? She says, no, I'm not married. We're just living together, and we, we own a home in Ording. So I asked her, well, why, why haven't you got married? She says, well, my husband's older, or my 
boyfriend's older than me, and he wants kids, and I don't want kids until he gets more serious, but we're not married. I went in to get, you know, may know that I had broken my glasses, and I had to get a new pair, and I'm trying to get them adjusted, so I went up on Saturday to the uh, eye doctor place, the optician, to adjust the glasses. Started talking to the lady, and uh, she was, well, not quite my age, but found out that she was uh, not married either, but she had two children. Her case was she lived with her husband for 11 years. They decided to have children, but they never got married. And I asked her if she ever thought about getting married, and what was her reasons for not getting married, and so on and so forth. And it was just this, this week, this stark reality was thrown in my face, and, and you can understand that marriage is not a popular custom anymore. A lot of people just hook up for however how long. Sometimes they bring a child in a relationship, which isn't a good thing. And by the way, those children that are growing up, the, the, the two girls are growing up with this mother and the husband isn't there, you know how it's going to turn out for them. But Why? aren't people marrying, and why aren't they staying together? Well, now you know, don't you? Marriage is, it, 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 it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing, because it's created by God, it's an opportunity for us to, to display his glory, but right now, because of the curse, and because of our sin, it's work. I can tell you, there are plenty of times that my wife is not happy with me, And vice versa. And I don't know how marriages with unbelievers or non-believers, how they stick. Because I don't know how we would have stayed together if it wasn't for a commitment to the Lord and to each other. So that's a little bit about divorce. And we'll get into it more in depth next week. But again, the idea is it's a permanent oneness a monogamous, lifelong relationship between a male and a female. And that divorce was allowed by Moses because of the curse and man's sinfulness. But it was never that way, folks, from the beginning. Because we live in a culture and in a world, and that world has influenced you and the church and in society to divorce and remarry as often as you drink a cup of water. And that is not God's intention. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for your words to us this morning. And I ask that your words would strike deep within us and then search our hearts. Lord, you would teach us your ways and educate us about this idea of divorce. And Lord, that this would serve as a fuel or an encouragement to work on our marriages, that they may be more God-honoring to you. And all God's people said, amen. I'd like you to just think of this application point, if it ever comes up here, here we go. I want you to just do something that some of you already do, done, but everyone do it. Review the sermon and answer questions I'll send out later today or tomorrow. Okay? Stand with me, we'll sing with a song, and then five minutes, after 
the song will start our, our annual business meeting. Okay? Very good. Sound. 